Good afternoon. This is the final day of the YPG Hub. Adobe is pleased to have been able to sponsor this. This is an exciting panel on the entrepreneur to employee, how a scrappy startup mentality can help. I think this is a really relevant topic here, especially since we have so many large businesses, government organizations, and startups that are present here at GON today. Moderating this panel is one of my favorite geo-inters, Karen Hayes-Ryan, who is the former uh, Chief Acquisition Officer of NGA and currently the CEO of KHR Impacts. Steve uh, Jalot is the CEO of RGI. Rachel Olney is the founder and CEO of Geosite. And Chris Rasmussen is the Tier Line Program Manager for CAOT NGA. Please give them a round of applause, and feel free to submit questions uh, via the cards, and if you're taking any pictures, please tweet them out using the USGIF handle and the uh, Trajectory Magazine handle. Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm Karen Hayes-Ryan, and I'm very happy to be here. I hope you have all read the Adobe article on scrappy startup mentality. It's very important, and it really shows Adobe's emphasis on their how, how their emphasis on customers really helped them and reinvigorate the big technology company, a successful technology company, into becoming a very entrepreneurial organization. So I'm going to have my panelists introduce themselves, um, for, give a quick overview, and I will tell you they they're very uh, they're very humbling. They've got one of the most incredible records um, of success already, and as you can tell, most of them are significantly younger than I am. So we'll start off with Steve. Uh, thanks. Uh, I'm the CEO of Reinvented Geospatial, or RGI. Uh, we are a solution provider here uh, for NJNRO and the U.S. Army, uh, a lot of Corps of Engineer work. Offices here in St. Louis, uh, Northern Virginia, and Aberdeen. So I do a lot of volunteer work with the USGF Small Business Advisor Working Group. So if you have any interest in being an entrepreneurial, doing a startup or a small business, uh, please come join us. Over at T-Rex, do a lot of uh, mentoring of CEOs over there. That's our volunteer work uh, through through their foundation, as well as part of the St. Louis Arch Grant Review. So we review all those applicants to see who's going to get the non-equity uh, grants. Um, so a lot of volunteer work, a lot of focus on mentoring. CEOs, reviewing business plans, things like that. Okay, next up we have Rachel Olney. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Rachel Olney. I'm the founder and CEO of Geosite. Uh, before that, I was a mechanical engineer and then became an org theorist. So um, today I'll talk both from a perspective of starting my own company, but also from the perspective of having studied um, how innovation happens in very large bureaucratic and hierarchical organizations. So I had the, the honor of getting to study Cyber Command as it was getting set up and look at how did innovators inside of the organization organization actually field technologies. Um, so we can, as you guys submit questions, we can think about it from starting your own company or innovating where you are now. Uh, and I'm happy to help with either of those. And someone who you may have heard from several times here and uh, several past GEOINs uh, from NGA, Chris Rasmussen. 
Oh, there you go. Uh, I'm Chris Rasmussen. Uh, I've been in the startup inside of the government space for about 15 years. Um, I like to work on projects where the initial reaction is, why would you do that? And to me, that's when you know you're onto something. I got my start uh, in after 9-11, uh, helping stand up of the Web 2.0 capabilities with inside the intelligence community, Intellipedia, uh, blogging software, social networking software, and that seems very pedestrian now, but to install a wiki in 2004 uh, within the intelligence community was a pretty radical idea. From there, I've uh, moved into other areas, uh, very similar, um, uh, of the, helping uh, the agency be the first to open source software on GitHub uh, to place apps in the Apple Store and Google Play. Uh, I was the founder of the GeoInt Pathfinder Initiative, which was a 100% unclassified telework effort six years before COVID uh, with, all of, with NGA, all of the allies, the Army, and the Marine Corps. Um, one of the things that came out of that effort was Terline. If you take out your phones and go to www.terline.mil, you can see the output of that. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But my emphasis has been mostly on the unclassified side. Uh, that's where I believe the next generational challenge is uh, on the open data and unclassified and commercial side. So I'll talk more about that later. Okay, so we have the first question. Um, there is a perception that innovation is easier for startups or for small businesses, that they have the freedom to see things in a radically different way uh, and not as much obligation to, to sustaining a specific uh, revenue stream. All three of you have worked within or in support of a very large traditional organization but are known for your creative genius. So how can large organizations adapt an entrepreneurial approach? Steve, we'll start with you. I think my first answer is always uh, find a good small business to work with and uh, bring them on in, and uh, you're, you're pretty solved there. Okay. Chris? Well, to, uh, as I was saying uh, to my initial remarks, uh, there, I think that we've really mushed together process improvement with real innovation. Right, something that's new and novel. And for me, um, you know, automating and mushing together two spreadsheets to produce something is helpful, but I, to me, that's not necessarily novel or unique. That's more on the process improvement side. And I think that we need to tier and separate process improvement from things that have never been done before. Because when it comes to things that have never been done before, I know that large organizations get a bad rap, but it's a very human thing to be reflexive, particularly if it goes against the grain. And this happens at Kaiser Permanente, this happens at Procter & Gamble, this happens at the Boy Scouts, uh, when you propose something that goes against traditional workflow. So a tip that I uh, would give, that I do, um, is I, beforehand, I, am, I prepare every argument, real or imagined, beforehand. And I have this folder on my computer, a bucket, just full of these arguments. Well, what would a rational person do to oppose this idea? And I read other articles and incorporate them into this file, and I practice it. Um, so when it comes up, I'm prepared. Um, kind of like you hear, hey, it would be so fun to hang out with a stand-up comedian. They must be funny all the time. Not really. They practice it all the time. Um, so uh, that's a kind of tip that I would give um, of a specific example of that that you could see if you go to the in, in your phone and you look at Terline. Um, a lot of employees at NGA, when we were launching Terline, were, were pushing for a more data-oriented site, a more GIS-y look and feel. 
that's a very bad design decision from a public-facing website. That's an outward projection of an internal enterprise workflow onto the internet. The vast majority of readers will take two paragraphs and a pretty picture, and you can nest the structured data within that narrative. If you look at sites that specialize in statistics and other things, they're not just dumping out huge structured data sets. That's not what the vast majority of people will do. So I look to trends in data journalism, actually negative trends, arguing that the, the old crusty news article is going to go away and it's going to be replaced by all these D3 libraries and visualizations. That is, that is absolutely false and went in the other direction. So I'll, I'll look to the data journalism arguments to be prepared for when someone says this needs to look more like a GIS and I'll have evidence from other things to bring that to bear. So it's kind of my tinfoil hat file that I keep um, and practice it. We're just going to have to be a team up here. We're innovating on the spot. It's, uh, it's good stuff. I love this idea of red teaming your own innovation. Yeah, it's, uh, it's weird, right? Um, uh, red teaming your own innovation ideas is fantastic. Um, so there are there are a couple of things. So obviously, at a startup, um, you know, our team can move very quickly. Um, we can decide to work on new things if we decide the market's changing, all of that. But from my time working in the DOD and looking at how were people or where were people successful at fielding new programs or fielding new capabilities, there are a few takeaways that I think are, are especially important and, and actionable. The first is I like to picture, you know, the innovative team or you can even just like picture yourself as like a pirate ship and there's a big ship that is the organization and and there's actually tons of theoretical, if you guys really want to dive deep in org theory, there's tons of articles and very technical names for this, but I just think of pirate ships. You have to take the pirate ship up next to you know, the ship in order to board it, right? You can't just commandeer it. You have to actually find where are the spots where the thing that you're trying to change about the organization interact with the rest of the organization and find parts of that, pro like you were saying, process is, is not necessarily the innovation itself, but if that innovation is gonna become systemic in the organization, you do have to think about how you're fitting into it. So you have to look at, okay, here is the status quo in the organization, here is where this technology is going to change our process or change the way we do things, and you have to think about the interoperability with the rest of the system, because if you just think about that innovation in isolation without thinking about the rest of it, a lot of times people will do a really cool pilot or a really cool study or a really cool you know, project and then it'll end up dying on the vine because it's not tied to the rest of what the organization is doing. Um, so that's, that's the first one. The second one is, especially in, in mission-driven organizations like the NGA, like the DOD, like the IC, um, you have to make sure to frame your innovation correctly. So there's actually a lot of literature on organizational framing and how people get enough internal advocates to create change. Um, and if you're in an organization that you know your mandate is to you know help fight and win wars, um, and your innovation is framed as I'm really excited about machine learning, people will say, okay, but how does that matter for what we're doing? So being able to take whatever the innovation is that you're creating or trying to introduce and put it in the language of the people that you actually need, you know, on board 
is really important and connecting it back to that why. Why are we doing this? Like, yes, this is cool, but why are we doing it? And being able to get by in that way is, is really important. Thank you. I think you wanted to follow up a little bit, Steve? Yeah, I mean, I, I do stick to my initial answer about, you know, the small business and getting outside of the organization. But I'm personally a huge fan of the Procter & Gamble model that they've used so successfully for years. If you think Swifter was a, was a startup, if I'm not mistaken, you probably know for sure. But it's you let the innovation happen outside the organization, then you go and buy it. And essentially, you're letting the industry do all the risk reduction, things like that, and then you pull it in. But if we look at it from the, the space that a lot of us operate in here, your real question is, is... I mean, we all say innovation, we all say entrepreneurial all the time, and it's really freaking annoying. But the question becomes, is your boss being is, is your boss actually being graded on innovative ideas, or is your boss being graded on just delivery, or is your government customer truly being graded on innovation or not? If you are you know, a POR over in the Army, your job isn't to be innovative, it's just to get your job done. So then you have to ask yourself, am I in the right job? You know, And just go find another job where you can be innovative at one of these small businesses. Thank you. Our second question. Um, so in our geospatial community, we periodically have world events that give all organizations great freedom and even great funding uh, to create, be entrepreneurial, be a little bit exciting. But those are usually brief windows in time and they rarely come with a sustainability budget. So now how do you, how do you across a large organization, government or industry, start and sustain a climate of, of innovation? Do you look at mission driving, capability pushing, lean, agile startup, and a lot of the other buzzwords that are out there? Rachel, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I think, um, so a little bit, you know, some, or related to what I was talking about earlier, the why, I think that the way that you make change and innovation sustainable is that it is tied completely to the mission of the organization. So it has to come from here are our top problems, here are the things we care about, here are our KPIs around them, and here's how we'll solve them. Um, and I think that once organizations have that, it, it helps tremendously because they can actually measure, okay, we gave budget for this innovation stuff and it affected you know, key, you know, key perform KPIs are key performance indicators that we care about um, as an organization. And so I think that helps helps make it sticky. One of the other things that, you know, I think when you're forming those what are the things we care about is that it has to be about the problem, not the technology, because the technology will change over time. And also there are, you know, a hundred different ways of solving the same problem. And so if the organization frames the types of things that they're innovating around, around key problems, I think that's far more important than, you know, framing it around key technologies, uh, because it makes it less fungible. Um, at, so the the design school at Stanford, the D school, right, which is like known for innovation, one of the things that they teach is that the most important skill that you can bring to an organization that's trying to innovate is not an ability to solve problems. It's actually the ability to find and pick the right problems to decide to solve. And so that actually, you know, it's really fun to solve problems. It's a lot less fun to have to sit there and say, okay, what are our most important problems? Let's triage those. But if you pick the most important ones, they exist even outside of those, those moments of crisis uh, because they are core to the organization. Thank you. Okay, Chris? On the, on the money side, to, to your question, uh, I've been hearing the declining budget thing for 15 years. 
Um, I don't necessarily, uh, there's, uh, when it comes to quotes, it's always like, Sometimes they're not even the right person. Uh, but I'll use one from uh, what's attributed to Winston Churchill. Gentlemen, we're out of money. Now we actually have to think. Um, so I don't think it's a money issue. Um, for, for me, going back to my experience with the stand-up of Intellipedia and those capabilities, it was the, the, the technology on the outside, is the Web 2.0 technologies were starting to form around 2003, 2004. The 9-11 the had been fairly recent, and the director of national intelligence was just recently stood up in around 2005, and they picked an agency-neutral place for that to stand up. I think, and all of the officers that were involved with building that and evangelizing that and growing that were all very young, and a lot of us were driven by, we think that this the lack of integration got some people killed, uh, and it was the hustle of that time. It wasn't necessarily money, it was the right window. And I see that again right now. I think that the, the greatest challenge, the generational challenge after 9-11 was, was integration. You can never be done with that. But right now, the most important challenge of this generation is to get the commercial and unclassified correct. And this is the right time. Um, you're seeing um, there's a bill in Congress night, right now to form an open translation and analysis center. Uh, there are uh, cues hidden inside of congressionally directed actions about an independent open source agency um, being formed. So you're, you're seeing the, sh the, the, the signs of that shift. And to me, it's that energy and that window uh, of not necessarily the budget, but that, that excitement from what, what needs to be done. And that's, in my opinion, where the energy is and should be focused is that. I think that's this is this generation's greatest challenge is all of the, most of the things that you see here don't need to be integrated onto what we call the high side. Figuring this out is the most important challenge that I think, and I don't necessarily think it has to do a lot with money. Thank you. Steve? Yeah, so... You know, as I was listening to you guys talk, I was thinking, you know, very tactical in, in some senses in terms of my thoughts. And, you know, is the organization that you work for actually right for, for innovation? And then kind of how do you ask yourself that question? And when you picture the, um, the folks, you know, do you picture a boardroom with people just sitting around a table saying, we need to be innovative? or we need to be entrepreneurs? And is, is that what's driving? Because there's a difference between change and innovation. There's definitely need for change management, things like that in an organization, but change doesn't need to be innovative. It can just be change, right? And I guess change is part of innovation in some senses. You know, or do you, do you picture an organization where you have passion around a whiteboard where you're talking about a mission and how the world could look or could be? How often in that conversation does the words innovation and entrepreneurial come naturally? You know, so the more your organization is using the word innovation, the more your organization is using the word entrepreneurial, you, you're just kind of drawn to this view of this boardroom where there's just cold, you know, cold coffee, you know, just sitting there with, with everyone that we've got to be innovative. You know, so that's, that's where you go, you know, and, and really ask yourself, Am I right for this organization, or do I need to go find that passion? You know, the people that are sitting in the coffee shop, just to like driving forward, and, and, and where how the world could look. Thank you. So we've all heard the phrases, you know, user needs, user requirements, use cases, must-haves, eighty percent solution, knee of the curve, minimum viable product. Can you all take a moment and share with us your recommended approach for? driving the entrepreneurial changes in a world with these kind of dynamic requirements. Chris, I'd like to start with you. 
Sure. I am. Um, I think that the uh, the minimum viable product and kind of structured exercises can can really help frame the what question are you asking type of thing. But in my experience, where it falls short is I'm not a big fan of surveying existing customers to ask them about things that only a few people could probably see in a real innovation. Um, and minimum viable product, sometimes you're going to have to go long and it's going to be a little more than just minimal. Um, I, I used this example yesterday uh, in, in when I spoke about uh, Tearline. Um, to put it in a larger context, it's estimated in 2020 there were 580 incubators and accelerators in corporate America. The vast majority of those did not produce innovations um, that provided substantial returns back to the home organization. And there's a lot of studied reasons why, but one of them is an, is an obsession with short-term return on investment. With things that have never been done before, again, different than process improvement, that is not going to be clear in 90 days. It's going to take time and strategic patience for that to grow out. Um, and again, using uh, the most recent example with Tearline, it's a thing now, but it wasn't. It, it was, it, we had a small group of people that could see it, and we just needed to hang on long enough to produce enough content where the evidence would be overwhelming. But it did, when you present something initially, what I wanted to convey is a lot of times people aren't going to applaud, like the, the big success thing on the Shark Tank, is most people are going to oppose your idea, particularly if it's, why would you do that? Why would you just type something with your thumbs when you can call somebody in two seconds? Why would you press this button when a black car comes, when you can pick up a taxi? Why would you do partnered content publicly. The public's not our customer. Those are the types of things that are not going to be clear and surveying a bunch of existing customers. I'm a big fan of talking to customers for things that have existed for a long time, but those types of leaps where only initially a few folks can see it, I just don't think that the minimum viable product approach is a good one. Okay, Rachel? Um, I think there's, so there's, I totally agree. A lot of these things take a long time, especially when you're, you're dealing with um, what I call necessarily inertial organizations. They can't, they, you know, you have, you're part of critical infrastructure. You can't be unwieldy, right? And so there are times where things are going to take time. Um, one of the things that I do kind of want to talk about, just as like a, you, were you used the word tactical earlier, and I'm like a very tactical sort of thing, is any time inside our company we end up working on a prototype or an MVP or, you know, any of these synonyms for that, the, the thing you start with is what are we trying, what is the question that we have that we're trying to answer with this thing, right? So an MVP or a prototype is just a tool that you're using to answer questions that you still have. Um, so to Chris's point, sometimes there are things that other people can't imagine and you have it imagined and maybe there's not questions that you have, but maybe you need a prototype in order to get funding, right? And that's a type of prototype. It's not a user prototype necessarily. My company's first prototype ever, the thing that got us our first check, um, because we got our first check, it was me and a PowerPoint and that was it. And you know, I was like, there are these major trends happening in, with spatial data and analytics, and I have I know like I know that what we're going to do is going to matter, but unless you can show people what you mean, sometimes you know you can't even get it off the ground. And so in that case, our very first prototype was a PowerPoint that it, I would click on the right spot on the PowerPoint so it looked like software, and recorded it as a demo 
to show like this is what I mean, right? And so that was like the absolute lowest resolution prototype you can possibly imagine. But the question wasn't how are users going to use this, right? So it didn't need to do that. The question needed to be can I convince other people to join this vision with me and can I help them understand what we're trying to do? So when you think about MVPs, it's not always about testing the technology. Sometimes it's going to be we're going to do a prototype to make sure that this spring works and we're going to do a different prototype to make sure this lens works. Uh, and then other times you're going to do a prototype to get funding or get stakeholders on board. And so understanding that a prototype can answer any kind of question you need it to, and then you decide what that prototype needs to be in order to answer that question, I think is a really powerful um, skill set. Okay, Steve? Yeah, so I'll go slightly different direction, um, but I see speed uh, as your number one. You know, speed, speed to the product, speed to capital. Um, in one sense, I mean, I'll be honest, I just met Chris and Rachel just like 15 minutes ago. I assume they're smarter than me. Uh, there's a point to this, you know, so what, and they, they probably know the mission better than I do, you know, so they can do anything I can do. And if we then look at, if I'm successful with the limited resources I have and an idea, they can take a look at that and immediately implement if they have access to more capital. If I'm losing my mic yet. Um, so that's why you get Amazon. That's where one of the big guys comes in and just does your idea because they have infinite resources where we're really strapped. So that's where the the speed to market and speed to capital becomes so, so important. Um, and then we, we talk out about IP a lot. And I don't think, one, we all understand how expensive a patent is. Two, how many patents you actually need to protect an idea because you have to protect it from all sides. And then you need the legal money again to go after somebody who has a patent infringement. And does that sound like a lot of fun when you have an innovative mind? You become, I mean, Oracle's famous for their legal team, right? You know, and I mean, that's what, that's that's how they make their money, right, at, at the end of the day. So where, where, I'm, where I'm coming to, it's, it's all about how quickly can you get off the gate? How quickly can you get to the access? How quickly can you get to the scale? How quickly can you make that first sale in order to be successful? Thank you, that's great. Very different points, and I really do appreciate all of that. I think one of the things I heard a couple times woven through here is the importance on the need, and Adobe in their paper talked about starting with the customer and driving through those requirements through that, and I think a lot of that prevails through, through the responses we have. So how do your entrepreneurial organizations balance specific innovation with COTS product, open source, custom code, et cetera. You wanna take that? Uh, sure, I mean, my, my first reaction was, we're not an innovative organization. Uh, but <laughs> but that's, that's to my first point, two points ago, where we don't sit around and say, let's be innovative today. Let's not be innovative tomorrow. You know, all we do is we, we come, you know, we come to the fight with new ideas and there's always a time and a place in the sense of, you know, today it's about meeting the mission, today is about delivering a capability, but version 1.1 or what, whatever we want to call it, you know, or the next sprint, the next release, that's where we're going to get idea A and our idea B. So I think that's my answer. It's, it's a weird question because, again, we don't get up every day to say let's be innovative today, you know. Okay. It's a natural thing. Okay. Rachel? Um, in terms of 
what type of technology we use. That is completely my CTO's domain. I'm a mechanical engineer running a software company. Um, but I, I agree completely with your point about, you know, it. You know, you wake up every day and you're like, all right, here are the problems today and we're going to solve them. We're going to use whatever is out there. One thing I do want to say, you know, because we are at a geospatial conference and we, we all know geospatial, you know, well enough, is at our company, one of the things that we committed to very early was open data standards and leveraging as many open source standards as possible and supporting those and being interoperable and doing all of that. So for us, what we realized is there are so many people doing absolutely extraordinary things in the geospatial industry and we want to be able to collaborate with all of them. And in order to do that, you have to decide from the very start that you are going to be you know, a good partner to everybody and that you are going to you know, work with everyone. And also we, you know, to the COTS, comment, you know, we try not to reinvent the wheel anywhere. Um, and that's been a huge strategy for us that if we see that somebody else has done something and they've done it very well, okay. we're just going to go ask them to help us and we'll, and we'll end up partnering with them uh, instead of, instead of you know, doing those development cycles over again that they've already completed. I'll put on my open source software hat again with my experience of designing all of the, the processes to get open source software out to GitHub from, from the agency. Uh, I just got a copy of this last night. Uh, a lot of this, uh, we wrote this memo about a year ago to empower government employees to contribute to open source repositories, and they just they just have to inform their first line supervisor. It actually empowers people to go out and go do that uh, from from the open source software perspective. And this memo should be coming out to all of DoD uh, very very soon with a lot of that language in there that we help write. So to me. Um, the, the, the buy, build, or you know, kind of question of commercial versus open source. Um, if it's not necessarily the the code uh, that's the most important, it's the talent. You look at TensorFlow from Google; they open sourced it. But the key is conditioning that data and the talent around it. It's not necessarily the actual code. Most of the libraries for a lot of these functions are completely in the open. Um, so I think it's it's it, if the balance is yes, if something's already made, and I know particularly in our business, this tracks back to the '90s and the Klinger Cohen Act of saying, "Oh, we don't build it in." Internally, if you can buy it off the shelf. I think with open, that was in the 90s, and the 90s music was great, but it was a long time ago. Um, I think that's a little bit outdated in the sense is as we hire more people, and as every knowledge management job or knowledge worker job becomes more technical, it, is it, it's not to the point where every employee has to learn how to code in Python, but it's kind of getting there. So if you have that talent internal, you can build it from open components internally. Um, and that's the big shift. And so you're seeing some of that at, at, at NGA. The NSA has taken this path a long time ago. Is Again, in the 90s, there was kind of this decision that was made that analysts analyze and contractors code. That's trying to be put back in the bottle a little bit. That the government employees need to be able to do this and code themselves to build it in the open. So from a, an entrepreneurial perspective, things that bring in open components to that thing being built in, rather than trying to sell commercial code, I think it's the talent to integrate into that open that's the opportunity, not necessarily trying to repackage open source, and I've seen this several times, is grabbing a bunch of open source and mushing it together and then calling it proprietary. So um, I, would, I would argue it's the talent to that open ecosystem and the contributions to those open repositories that are already out there, that's the, that's the key. Okay, and Chris, this may be 
directed more at you, um, but I think I'd like to hear it from all of you. When is failure an option? When is it not? And when do you know? So, uh, we again, I think uh, we, there's things that we say all the time, and it's just like, you know, uh, motherhood and apple pie, and, you know, who can quantify who loves their kids more? It's, just, it's an impossible exercise. And we hear that a lot, but... When you are in a mission-driven taxpayer organization, to me personally, I haven't really felt that it's okay to bomb. Um, you're always kind of in a fishbowl, and I, I think that you need to accept that. Um, um, so there is the fail fast type of thing, and one of the, the, the biggest failures that I'll be, I'll be frank came out of my time with Intellipedia. So we kind of automated the digital water cooler. There was this massive unofficial knowledge base that was created very, very quickly within the intelligence community that helped with the culture of information sharing. I wanted to apply that to the official voice. I wanted to reduce the number of product lines in the intelligence community that NGA had a product, CIA had a product, DIA had a product. I, all, I wanted it all done in the wiki. So I took these agency logos and things like that and put it in there, and it was an absolute superior technology as far as bringing a, a living purple piece of intelligence, joint piece of intelligence together. And it was built and it was put onto Intellic. The trade-offs weren't there. The agencies just would not do it. NGA did a couple of them, uh, DIA did some, and there was a couple small little things, and it, it, so it, it bombed. But the production reform debate is still around. Um, so I, 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 that was the most, uh, I guess, failure, but it was good in the sense that I took a swing at it. Um, but that, I just wanted to give it a specific example of something that didn't catch on. But it didn't catch on because the technology. It didn't catch on is because the trade-off, the human trade-off, the actual behavior change wasn't there. Right? So you, the lesson learned that I took away at a very young age was you can have the greatest technology, but if the process benefits are not traded off in human interaction, the technology is just going to sit there. And I saw this one, and I posted it on, on Facebook and LinkedIn recently, of somebody sweeping the floor at a Roomba store. And they were actually sweeping when the robot could have done it. Again, if, you, if you're not going to let the technology improve and just continue to sweep the floor, that's, that's the lesson that I learned from the, the failure time of my living intelligence thing. You can actually see the video on YouTube. There's two of them still on YouTube. Uh, there's two of them called Towards Living Intelligence and actually the technical more one. It's called Towards Living Intelligence. You can see that, but that was a total bomb. <laughs> Thank you for your candor, Chris. I really appreciate it. Rachel? I think... Um, so I completely agree with Chris's assessment about the idea of failure when you're, when you're in one of these fishbowls. So I want to, I'll also go to a specific example that's not from, you know, so I would say in our company, we give people tons of leeway to experiment. I wouldn't even call it failure. It's experimentation. Hey, we don't know how we're going to do this. We're going to try it a bunch of different ways and we'll see what happens, right? But again, we're a startup. In a big organization... One of the ways that I've seen people actually reframe this and, and do it successfully is think of it as de-risking. So as you are proposing something new in a large organization, what are the things that you're doing along the way to de-risk? And to me, that's the fail fast. It, they're basically synonymous. They sound different, they feel different, but they're synonymous. How can we de-risk this along the way? AKA, okay, we're gonna bring it to this meeting, we're gonna talk about it in these ways, we're gonna give it to these users, and we're gonna test it in these ways. And each of those times that you're doing that, you're actually de-risking whatever it is you're trying to implement. Um, and so 
you know, if, if the whole fail fast thing is too scary for, for your organization, having that, hey, we're going to iterate really fast. Um, and the reason we're iterating really fast isn't that we're failing fast. It's actually that we're de-risking and learning new things consistently that are changing the plan, and that's okay. Um, because it is experimental, because we are, you know, de-risking it by learning more. Thank you, Steve. Sure. So uh, the, the first, you know, I, I was told to have, what, two two do's and a don't, right? Uh, the, the best thing to do is learn from somebody else's failures, not your own. You know, that that is definitely the preferred approach. Uh, but, you know, after that, what is failure, uh, really? And, you know, finding out that a technical solution doesn't support a mission problem, uh, it's like I, I got to clean up, sorry, you know, I <laughs> threw myself off there. Um, yeah, if finding a solution doesn't work, it doesn't matter. You know, you just write your technical report that nobody was ever going to read. You put your pretty graphs in there, hit submit, contract done. Right? That's success. You know, is it the usability side of a solution where it's just not intuitive? Is that failure? Right? Is it we failed to make payroll? That is kind of a failure. Right? Um, that's something you want to avoid. So what I'm really getting at is what is you're fielding an irrelevant capability at a, at a huge cost. That's that feels like failure to me. Not hitting payroll definitely feels like failure, you know, those those types of things. But back to how are you being graded, and then more importantly, how is your boss being graded, right? If your boss can't accept failure, then you can't fail, and then you can't use, you know, the words like innovative and entrepreneurial and stuff like that, right? Because because you're going to take the heat for it at, at some point. So that's the real key. There's a time and place for everything. And you really have to judge to the part of your question of how do you know when. It's, it's how is everyone being graded to make your decisions. All right. We're going to go um, to the audience questions now. They see the golden ticket winners seem to have arrived. So we'll um, hopefully be able to address some of their um, specific issues. But uh, one of the questions that came in is, uh, Rachel, how should we pick the right problems? What factors should we consider, for example? Money? Market valuation, society impact, venture capitalist focus. You know, if I um, if I find the solution or if I find the actual answer to that question, I think that I would probably be the smartest person on the planet. That's uh, it's. I mean, that is the question. It is so hard. It is so hard to pick the right problem. Um, and I think that each of those, the, you listed off a couple on there that, that the question asker had put. Is it market value? Is it technology? Is it, you know, all these things? I think you can use any of those, right? I think back to the what's the why, what's the problem, you know, all that stuff. The, the problem could be a market problem. The problem could be a technology problem. It could be, you know, whatever. For myself personally, when I started my company, I never, ever expected to start a software company or a company or especially a geospatial software company. Um, you know, my my technical background is manufacturing, so like the the closest I get to really getting to use any of my technical expertise is how much I love process design, and you know, getting to use technology to fix process design. But the way that I ended up starting Geosite was, I reflected on what are my personal skill sets like what are my superpowers and I think that it's really good for you to for anybody to be able to step back and say here are the things that I do really well really really well like if I if somebody puts me in a room and we're all doing this thing like I am one of the best at this um, and then and it can be anything and and for me it's being able to to wrangle people when you know they're all going I'm good at hurting cats right like I'm, I'm very good at that right that's a skill 
and then make I made a list of problems that I cared about. And um, ultimately, I ended up starting Geosite because I was working with a, a military team, and they had had a handful of casualties due to the problem that we solve. And you know, I, I got home after you know being with this team for a while, and I couldn't sleep. I just like I kept thinking about it. I'm like, this is the dumbest problem. This I can solve this problem, and I realized that the problem was one third uh, bureaucratic, one third technical, and you know, one third technology or no technical, and then political. Political was the really fun one because the the type of problem we solve ends up touching a bunch of organizations, and people don't want people doing that and and I realized you know I'm an organizational theorist with a technical background who is sitting somewhere where I could get funding to do a startup right and so for me the what is the right problem was what are the things that I have access to that I can use to solve a problem to Chris's point earlier about timing you were saying like when there's this momentum around something that is another like what is the right problem that like there is enough momentum behind for me to actually make a difference on. And so I would actually encourage everyone to have many things that you're passionate about because you never know, you know, when you're going to end up in the right spot at the right time when the momentum is there and you're like, we're doing this now because it's something that needs to be done and it's the right, you know, it's a problem that matters. Um, I hope that kind of answers the question, but that's an impossible question to, <laughs> to answer. So Steve, what is your view uh, on the role of open standards um, in geoint development? More towards probably innovation. You know, real innovative ideas don't fit well within existing standards. And while you you two were talking earlier today, I was thinking it's like you know I I, I stopped programming probably when I was 22. And, um, and not knocking our, our standard body at all, but I was using the standards back then. So a lot of the challenges with innovation, you want innovation completely separate from the status quo of everything. And then if everyone has their open standards appropriately implemented, you can sometimes shoehorn them back in, but not always. You know, and it's like, how do you get 3D into WMS? I don't know. Is that possible? I like immediately look over to Chitra. Like, I don't think that makes sense, right? It's like, but there's just so much there in terms of, well, then how do we bring the standards forward to meet the latest innovation without getting stuck in the world of let's create one more standard? So it's, it's very, that's a hard one. Good. Thank you. Chris. You mentioned budgets are not shrinking, but innovation teams are going out of style, um, and that money is simply used to bug, oh, buy startups instead of building them. Is this new trend correct, and is it useful? Well, again, if you look at the, the, the studies of incubators and things, yes. I mean, the numbers are going up. So in, two, in the estimate of, of the, the 580 I used in 2020, from 2018, there were 300 more of those added to that number. So the trend of, of the attempts being done of these internal R&D labs, again, the, the, there's, there's a lot of uh, studies about this and the literature um, of comparing venture capital versus an internal innovation shop. And, and the venture capital approach, again, Silicon Valley is a tiny bit of our economy. And they get outsized attention on how to do things, particularly on the venture capital side. But the venture capitalists, they're gonna, they take a lot of bets and they think most of them are gonna fail. They're very hands off and they take that long approach. Again, back to why so many of these shops, internal corporate shops fail, 
is because they're internal to the organization and people are just constantly pounding on the lectern about short-term return on investment. And that, that is just a fix the current floor problem of make it go a little bit faster. And I think that's the challenge with a lot of these shops is they are just obsessed with show me what the customers are saying and just asking these questions after 90 days. If something is new and really challenges the why would you do that, again, I think strategic patience and acting more like venture capitalists inside these internal incubators um, is, is what, what needs to be done. When someone comes to you with a crazy idea, the thing isn't, have you, gone, have you put this through the lean startup canvas? Or all of the, have you talked to these customers? Did you talk to legal? That's the, those are the wrong questions immediately. The right question is to start building the people who can see it and then start developing overwhelming evidence from that and then you can start arguing to the, the, that curve, the adoption curve, the early majority, you know, the late majority, and the laggards, uh, the, the chart that we've all seen. So to me, it's just it's a timing question. I think that, again, I think the Silicon Valley gets an outsized thing, but I think the more venture capital model internal to the organization. So if you are internal, and the numbers on this, it's every company, um, it's around 200 employees. Once 200 employees come on, you start to take on this middle management challenge. So it's, that's kind of small um, when you see this. So if you're in one, I would argue to the, the make the case to the jury uh, that lay off. Um, have, have faith in, in you hired me to be smart, uh, us to be smart. We're coming up with this. It's not going to be clear in nine seconds. Um, also, new technology is always held and new ideas are always held to impossible standards up front. Know that's coming. So where's the wiki page that Ketch has been laden? That was the standard. Well, that's a pretty high one. Um, so, I mean, just expect that. Um, and just, I would ask, the, ask for patience and, and trust in, if you hired us to do this, have faith, and let's not stop talking about Excel spreadsheets and return on investment after nine seconds. I think that, that would help a lot. Okay, thanks. So we are really short on time. Um, somebody asked a really great question about how do I find a co-founder and a match between founder and first investor. Um, I want to figure out who that person is. If you don't mind coming up afterwards, we're going to get you a good answer from everybody. Um, but we're not going to do it here. Um, what I'm going to ask for from, from the panelists, um, and, and Steve hinted at this earlier, I, because we are here at the Young Professional booth, I really wanted to get these experts, and they really are experts, to give what I call two do's and a don't. What, less than one minute each, because John's coming to the stage. Um, but I really want you guys to just say, if you don't mind, I'll start with you, Chris. Two do's, things to do, and then one don't. To that impossible question of why are we here in the universe almost that you got, I would abstract it out is be original. Know the trade space and just know, do a literature review of what's already out there. If you can be original, that's the key, is just something that's original. And I just, I, I, I press that all the time, is do something that's actually new. So focus on being original. Um, the other one would be practice in the mirror. Be prepared for the counter arguments. They're coming. Just be practiced and be ready. Kind of like a pre-mortem. You know, we always talk about post-mortems. Do a pre-mortem to yourself to be prepared. And the don't, I already touched upon this. If you're doing innovation, don't survey existing customers. Don't put a lot into that. Take the first volley, then take those smaller refinements. But the, the big pushes do not come from surveying the current customer base. I, I, would, I would avoid doing, doing that. That would be my biggest don't. Okay, Rachel. 
Awesome. Uh, so my first do would be pick something that you're really excited about, um, like really, truly, deeply excited about. When I tell people about what our company does, I still get so excited that whoever I'm talking to also gets excited. And what they don't realize is that's like the 500th time that day that I've had to say what we do. And I've been doing it for years and I will keep doing it for years. So pick something you love, love, love. Um, the second part, which is related, is work with people you adore. Like to that, whoever the co-founder co question person, come find us and we'll talk about it. Work with people that you really, really want to work with. And then the don't would be, um, don't be afraid to end up in industries where you're gonna have to learn really fast and don't feel like there aren't things that you can't just pick up as you go. Because if you're working on something you're passionate about and you're working with amazing people and you have a beginner's mindset, you know, you can't be like, well, I don't know that industry, I can't get into it. Because um, I guarantee you can learn it really fast. All right, Steve. Okay, real quick. So uh, as I said before, learn from somebody else's mistakes, not your own. That's pretty good. Uh, be secure in yourself and lead. Uh, if, you, if you're going to be a leader, you, uh, you listen to others to adapt to your approach, but it's so important to just be be out front and be like, no, this is this is the path. This is this is what I see. And then the the don't is uh, as I've already been like kind of cranky up here. It was like, don't use words like I'm an innovator, or, I'm an entrepreneurial. You know, show people, show people with your passion for the mission, for the technology, and what you're trying to accomplish. All right, thank you very much, and thanks to Adobe for sponsoring this, and welcome to all the young professionals. Well, thank you all. This was really, uh, this panel really exceeded my expectations, and I'm sure, I mean, I could listen to you all all day, but I think to your point, and, and to your point, Steve, hearing about passion was kind of something that I took away, and do something that you're, you're, you're passionate about. So Chris, Rachel, Steve, and Karen, thank you very much for participating in the panel. Some of these concepts that we talked about here are actually a lead into our next panel around uh, the data ecosystem, and we're going to touch on open standards there as well. So stay tuned. We'll be up in about five minutes. Thank you very much.